0: Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM Podcast for the week of June 21st, 2021. While we may be in the late innings of the fight against COVID-19, with the U.S. outbreak possibly, maybe, perhaps, on the verge of being contained, evoking a familiar Yogi Berra saying seems appropriate here. It ain't over till it's over. Indeed, we just passed the sobering milestone of 600,000 COVID deaths in this country. And while our nation's recovery gives us plenty to cheer about, plummeting rates of COVID-19 cases, ER visits, hospitalizations and deaths in seniors, the subtext of the most recent CDC report made us pause when we read that administration of COVID-19 vaccines has steadily declined in adults since mid-April 2021. Indeed, vaccine hesitancy is still a big problem. We're so close yet with vaccination slowing so far from the goal of 70% by July 4th that states are pulling out all the stops. Against that backdrop comes a study by ZS Associates on how commercial behavior, behavioral science can help solve healthcare hurdles, even perhaps vaccine hesitancy. And Jacob Browdy, who's a leader of Applied Behavioral Insights Practice at Consultancy ZS, is our special guest this week to tell us about six specific behavioral nudges that ZS found that have the potential to encourage COVID-19 vaccination. Hey, Jacob, how are you
1: doing? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Happy to have you here. Just a couple of housekeeping items, as we usually do. MMM's June Agency 100 issue went live last week with 100 profiles on the biggest medical marketing agencies in North America. Uh, The digital content package includes revenue table analysis, an agency family tree, and more, and uh, you can register for free to access that at our website. Also coming up this Thursday, um, I'll be moderating a webcast as part of the Trend Talk series, and I'll be joined by marketers from Health Monitor Network and Cardinal Health as we continue to explore how pharma marketing is expected to look post-COVID. And again, that's coming up this Thursday, June 24th, and you can register for that webcast at our website, mm mm-online.com. Okay now back to the interview with Jacob. You know first let's just say that uh, behavioral scientists have proposed fixes for the vaccine rollout since the early innings things like uh, using a targeted digital messaging strategy tailoring interventions by community you know recommendations from the HCP or trusted peer seeing others in your peer group get the shot. These are all behavioral-based interventions. But as we get deeper into the rollout, there's another aspect of behavior that comes into play where researchers are looking not necessarily at how to motivate people who want the shot, but what's keeping people who haven't gotten it from wanting it. There's a whole area focused on what's called cognitive biases, those mental shortcuts that lead to poor choices in many areas of our lives, including our health. Jacob, can you give us a rundown on these cognitive biases?
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So academic behavioral science has been exploring this for a number of decades. Um, and I think it's just over the last several years that we're starting to, to look at commercial applications. Um, but it all boils down to a simple biological truth, right? We, we just don't have a lot of horsepower and rational decision making when we sit down and think things through and try to make good choices. It's extremely expensive for our brains. They can literally watch our blood sugar drop when they force us to make a bunch of rational choices. And so we all are running a decision aid in the background that is designed to be as efficient and quick as possible. Uh, And that that works like a factory, right? So if, if you think about Apple as a metaphor, Apple can pay a bunch of engineers to sit down and take time to think through, how should we design an iPhone? They can send that plan to a factory and very quickly and cheaply, factory can churn out phones. Now, if there's a mistake in the plan, you get a bunch of broken phones, right? The factory's not thinking about the plan. It's just following the plan. Same thing with our second decision-making part of our brain. It just has a bunch of rules that it's learned over time. And you walk into a situation and very quickly and cheaply, you can get a decision. It may not be a good decision because the rules may be misapplied. And so that's when it becomes a bias, right? When you use the wrong mental shortcut in the wrong scenario, And you get a bad decision, leads to bad patient outcomes, bad medical decisions. If you buy a car you didn't want, or take a vacation you shouldn't have taken, or marry the person you shouldn't have married. There's lots of these choices we make every day that are being nudged by this in the background in ways that we're not aware of.
0: Yeah, listeners may recall Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project about the two psychologists credited with founding the field of behavioral economics, uh, which we wrote about a couple of years ago. It's all about misapplying uh, rules. And uh, this also, this type of human error plays into vaccine decision-making as well, doesn't it?
1: I mean, all, all aspects of healthcare, honestly. We work across all aspects of healthcare. And as we were looking at, where, where are places where these mental errors have dramatic effects, not just for the person individually, but for the community that they live in. Communicable disease, infectious disease vaccination seemed like an obvious one to start with as a way to demonstrate. Um, And so that's where the idea of focusing on the study, not just because of the pandemic, but also pediatric vaccine usage is declining. Adult vaccine usage is not nearly where it should be. There's lots of areas where we could be happier, healthier people, And we're not because of, in part, because of some of these nudges that are happening in the background that we're not aware of.
0: Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, what's also behind some of the strategies that we're seeing of late, like the million dollar lotteries that are being shamelessly promoted by governors that are grabbing headlines these days?
1: It is. So I, I think the place where you get a divergence from academic behavioral science, behavioral economics, and commercial is the need within a commercial setting to do tests specifically on the behavior you're targeting, right? In an academic setting, you can do an experiment with students or you can do an experiment with um, seniors, whoever you can get access to, and then you try to apply that broadly. But what we've realized very quickly when we started to try to do that is that a lot of those don't apply. They don't apply across same populations, the same sorts of decisions. And so for organizations where you really need to have confidence that you're deploying the right triggers, important to do the research up front to test a number of these different sorts of nudges and see which ones actually do work. And we we were as surprised by the ones that worked as we were by the ones that didn't work in this research. Some of the things that we see people using all the time, at least in our research, didn't make any difference between people's willingness to get a vaccine uh, at the beginning of the survey and at the end of the tests.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, you know, study methodology when and where it was fielded, and then and then we'll get into you know what you found.
1: Uh, so we fielded this in um, in March and April. Uh, it was about six thousand, a little over six thousand respondents across uh, seven countries. We looked at five countries in Europe. We looked at the U.S. We looked at Japan, um, and we had three arms. We looked at COVID vaccination. We looked at adult vaccination and pediatric vaccination. And and to to get into the study, you had to say you were against getting a vaccine or at least hesitant to get a vaccine. And uh, once you enrolled, the methodology basically you know, rips off the world of behavioral science and behavioral economics. We did 20 different experiments on people. Um, we basically took published scientific um, methodology and rewrote it for vaccination. And we randomized people into test and control groups. And we looked to see, and we, we also randomized which, which bias tests they saw in which order so we could remove the the order, ordering effect. And we just looked to see, you know, based off of the bias trigger, if there's a single variable in the scenario, did people go from, I'm not sure or I'm not willing at all to, yeah, I think I think I will get vaccinated. And so we just wanted to look at how many, what, what chunk could we move within different subpopulations, within different countries and that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so, so the goal was to identify the discrete mental shortcuts that when built into how public health Officials engage with vaccine hesitant people can nudge them in positive ways toward a willingness to get vaccinated.
1: That was the focus. Yep.
0: Okay. So what did you find uh, vis-a-vis you know COVID nineteen vaccinations? What were the most effective uh,
1: triggers? Well, okay. So let's 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 talk about COVID. I, I before we do, I I just want to highlight. You know, we did not find the same triggers worked for yes, I'd be willing to get vaccinated for COVID. To yes, I'd be willing to get vaccinated for shingles. To yes, I'd be willing to have my child vaccinated for MMR. So it it really helps focus on, it. it's not enough to just say that this works in that area, so let's apply it here. You really need to check to see if it's gonna work because there was some overlap, but a lot of things worked in one place and didn't work in another. We looked at um, about 19 different well-established cognitive biases across 20 different tests. And there were six in particular in in COVID where it pushed people towards vaccinating vaccinations, and there was one, there was one that actually pushed people away and um, three three that uh, we thought for sure would work. We, we see it all over the place that, that didn't work at all. So maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll walk you through some of the ones that were effective. You know, stop me, and ask, ask if anything's not clear cause it's, it can get a little bit dense. So halo effect basically just says that we have a, a habit of conflating things that aren't related. So a good example of that is that if people are dressed in expensive clothes, uh, they're judged to be more competent. Even if you tell people, ignore the way they're dressed, they still rate them as more competent. They, maybe their uh, father, you know, they inherited a bunch of money or they're borrowing their friends. clothes. There's lots of reasons why you could be wearing expensive clothes, but people conflate that with your competence. Vice versa, you might be somebody who doesn't have this shortcut and you walk into a meeting and to you, clothes are dysfunctional, And so you just shop wherever, Walmart, Target, what have you, the people in that meeting may be looking at that and saying you know i don't know if this person knows what they're doing and so we we often miss these sorts of of mental shortcuts that can have big impact on our careers our decision making that sort of thing so one of the ones that we've seen work well here in the states that other countries are just starting to come on board with is people conflate location with the trust in the vaccine if i get the vaccine at church where i really trust the folks that i see there that's different than if I get the vaccine at a sports center or, you know, at a local pharmacy. And so the way we built that test is we asked people, well, what are the places you trust? Rank them for us. And then we randomized you. And either you were told, hey, that vaccine's being offered at a place you don't trust, so we inserted the place. Or it's being offered at a place that you do trust, and we inserted that place. And we looked to see, does that change their willingness? Do they go from... Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it too. Okay, I'd be willing to do it now that I know it's at, you know, my local fire station or at the army base nearby. And the places that people gave us were very different. They were different by different subpopulations, older generation liked, um, you know, fire stations, whereas people in suburban like pharmacies. But if you put it in that place that they trust, they were much more willing to do it. And I was, I was just talking to one of our collaborators in India who's working on vaccination there. Obviously that's a, a huge global importance. And he was talking about a, a, another program that had been really unsuccessful because in that town, they were predominantly Muslim and Christian, but they had put the vaccine center in the Hindu temple. Nobody showed up. Nobody wanted to be vaccinated in Hindu temple. And so recognizing that where you give the vaccine can influence how people think about is this trustworthy? Is this safe? Is this something I should be doing? Is a big opportunity I think in, across all the countries that we looked at.
0: And so the location of uh, where the vaccine is is administered—that's something, an example of something that can pull people toward getting vaccinated.
1: Yeah, and I—I'll I, correct myself. I misspoke. If you are in public health in Japan, and you are working on vaccine hesitancy, location was not a mover there. Everywhere else, it was. Okay. Okay. And what about the halo effect? That, so that, that is that halo, the halo effect is the, the place where, um, you're doing the vaccination needs to be something, trusted, Right. So that's that. I'm dressed well, in one of the point. same. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the same thing.
0: Uh, so you found about, um, you know, a half a dozen of these, uh, mental shortcuts that, you know, can encourage vaccination, I guess, depending on the country. Can, can you give some other examples of, you know, how of the triggers themselves and how they could be used uh, in the vaccine effort?
1: So um, one that worked everywhere and also across all three arms, so this works for adult vaccines, works for COVID, worked everywhere, uh, is a confirmation bias tactic. So confirmation biases, I, you're very familiar with it. Anyone who follows politics today, very familiar <laughs> with it, right? You just, you happen to notice things that support what you want to believe is true or what you think is true and things that go against that, you have blinders. on. You just don't see them. We had a suspicion that that was already a bias that was driving people away from vaccines. So what we wanted to do is test a mitigation tactic that came out of the academic literature. And the way this tactic works is you ask people to say, okay, you don't want to do this thing. But thinking about somebody who does want to do this thing, why might they want to do that? And just get them to take a minute to articulate in their own words from somebody else's perspective why they might want to do that. And we had some respondents take this not very seriously, and we got some some data we had to throw out, but most people took it seriously. We got reasonable answers around, okay, thinking from their perspective, why would they want to get vaccinated for COVID? Why would they want to get vaccinated for shingles? And then we reassessed them, okay, so how are you feeling about getting vaccinated? And the people that we had do that perspective taking exercise, we got big jumps in their (laughs) response. You know, if we remove all the overlap, that was one of the biggest drivers. of willingness to get vaccinated across all of our different cohorts. Just the way it's presented to them. Well, so the key is that they need to present it to themselves, right? So instead of trying to tell the next next time you're talking to someone who is hesitant and you're you're just pulling your hair out and you've been telling them all this data, all these things you've read, don't do that. Just pause and say, well, okay, if you were to get vaccinated like, why would you want to do that? Thinking about this person you know, why, why do you think they got vaccinated? Just get them a chance to fill in the gap and that will move their unconscious comfort with the idea and make it more likely that they're going to get vaccinated themselves.
0: Okay. Kind of flipping the script a little bit. Yep. Uh, what would you say is the most um, you know, low-hanging fruit amongst the different triggers that you found would be uh, relevant?
1: Well, that's a good question. Well, so you talked about the lotteries. Um, we did do a prospect test. So the idea that if you feel like you won something, it's got more value. So the, the way we did this test is we either told people, hey, there's a vaccine. You can come down and get it. Do you want to get it? Or, hey, we had a drawing and you were selected to get a vaccine. We're holding it for you. Do you want to come down and get it? And people who felt like they had won, just all they had won is the chance to get vaccinated. There was no added incentive. We still got big jumps in, oh yeah, I'm coming. Give, give me that vaccine. So even in communities that don't have the resources to Give away motorcycles or a million dollars or what have you. Just creating the perception that there was a drawing and you are one of those winners, even if 100% of people are the winners, can increase people's value on the vaccine, perceived value, and then their willingness to come in and, and get the shot.
0: Right, right. I have a colleague who always says, well, you know, there, there's another benefit to getting vaccinated besides, you know, a, a, a drawing. And that is that, you know, if you get an mRNA based shot, you have a 91 percent reduction in your risk of of getting sick. And if you do get sick, you know, it'll be a much milder form of the illness. For those that are not motivated by public health, to the extent that this uh, nudges them over the edge, so to speak, if it works, great.
1: Benefits us all. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, and you also looked at bias triggers that may work uh, with other adult vaccinations, right, Uh, as well as those that you say are capable of moving hesitant parents to allow their child to get standard pediatric vaccines. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: We did, so there was some overlap but a lot of not overlap in those um, two groups. So I'll, I'll highlight for you one that worked for pediatric and adult but did not work for COVID. Um, so one of the tests we ran was a commitment bias which is basically if you publicly commit to doing something that increases your likelihood to go through with it. Now, when we ran this test where we told people, okay, imagine for example, that you'd gotten a job and uh, you had posted on Facebook, hey, I got this job, but then you find out the job requires you to be vaccinated. Are you likely to do it? Did not work for COVID, but it did work uh, for pediatric or um, adult vaccines. So any place, any tactics we can deploy on opening the door to a public commitment not, even not, not around vaccination, around something that would require vaccination can significantly increase people who would otherwise not have gotten it to then go and do it.
0: O- opening the door to a public commitment.
1: Yep. Okay, okay.
0: Um, early on, the, the vaccine rollout uh, was plagued by a lot of operational issues, you know, scaling up a national vaccination effort on a, on a you know, national level, uh, as well as inequitable access to shots. Frontline workers and people in essential jobs didn't have time off from work or adequate personal or sick time they had to go and clinics were open. We've since improved on that with vaccinations yep. at various mass venues and, and better hours. But given the situation is changing, do we also need to change up the tactics used to stimulate demand?
1: Well, so effort bias was successful in our COVID and our pediatric arms. So that was basically just what you're talking about, right? If we, if we told them here are the three easy steps to getting vaccinated, versus we told them, hey, you can now get vaccinated, but we left that ambiguous. We got a big bump in those two arms. It didn't help with the adult vaccines, but with COVID and with pediatric, making things easy does help. Um, So we definitely wanna keep doing those sorts of things, Um, but pivoting to other tactics. So for example, another one that was very successful in the COVID arm in particular was something called social facilitation which is basically you feel like somebody is watching you, you behave differently. So one of my favorite experiments that they, they did on the academic side, they um, put a picture of a pair of eyes on a tip jar at a coffee place, and they just looked to see, do tips improve? And they doubled, right? So just, just some mild reminder, people are paying attention to what you're doing, can drive increased behavior. And so if we told people, you know, hey, somebody canceled your kid's play date when they found out that you weren't vaccinated right? People are aware of your vaccination status, and they are changing their behavior based off of it. It increased people's willingness to get vaccinated. So even just something simple like asking people, hey, good to see you. Haven't seen you in a while. Have you been vaccinated? They may say no, but the fact that you're asking can drive them to say, you know, I probably ought to get this done. People are paying attention to it.
0: Social facilitation. Yeah. Um, This this research shows the potential for uh, behavioral science to make an impact when the stakes are high, like during the pandemic, um, it, it also has value to change people's actions in a lot of other areas of healthcare. It seems like I'm interested in getting your take on where industry can kind of get behind this, uh, and you do call it commercial behavioral science. So can you elaborate a little bit on how you see the opportunity for the farm industry to perhaps support some of this or integrate some of the behavioral science tactics into its own interventions?
1: I mean, if you think about any business, pharma manufacturer or otherwise, human behavior is pretty critical to a number of areas, right? Could be employee behavior, could be your customer behavior, and in most of those places, in most of the organizations we work in, and not not just in in healthcare, right? In in tech, um, financial services, a lot of places, they are not actively looking at well, what are the mental shortcuts? What are the cognitive biases that are influencing this decision making process? And so how does that then change the way that I build my patient support program or the way that I train my sales force to be more effective in engaging with our customers or the way I educate physicians? Physicians are not exempt from these sorts of, if, if anything, they rely more on their expertise. And that expertise is often takes the, the form of these mental shortcuts that they've learned over time in their practice. And they can create negative outcomes for patients if they are used in the wrong setting. So for example, we did work with cardiologists where we were trying to get them to recognize how many sick patients they had who needed to see a heart team right before it was too late. They needed, they would benefit from a referral. And one of the tests we ran, we showed them a clinical profile of a patient. We asked them, hey, would you diagnose this patient for us? And would you please tell us, would you refer this patient? Would you recommend them to the heart team? And half of them, we just said, oh, by the way, this patient is a close family friend. And we got huge jumps in diagnosing them as severe and in willingness to refer them to the heart team, right? And so that emotional anchor comes out, again, out of the academic literature. They've shown that that can help overcome status quo. But I'm sure that if you talk to a doctor and said, so does your emotional relationship with the patient influence your treatment protocol? They'd say, absolutely not. But the truth is that it does, right? And the more that we can raise this, to uh, their level of awareness. And, and we've seen that, that physicians are very open to this, to, to being able to improve outcomes and, and improve care by recognizing where they're misdeploying some mental shortcuts, I think is a, a way that pharmaceutical manufacturers can play the, the valued partner role, right? It's not just about how can I move my product, it's about how do we improve patient outcomes? That's what most of our clients seem to care about and, and we do as well. But, you know, you could do well by doing good, for sure. I also
0: wanted to ask you, obviously, the nation's consciousness has been raised uh, in the last 14 months uh, since the terrible, tragic death of of Mr. George Floyd. And the nation has been, you know, reckoning with a, a racism problem. More and more stories are coming out about this problem of structural racism in medicine. I recently read a story about a woman who was black who had an accident and she went to the E.R., with her husband who's white and she felt like the doctor was talking only, you know, mostly to her husband and little, you know, microaggressions as, as she put it like that taking place in the clinical encounter. And, and as you say, you know, doctors are not immune to these cognitive biases that can uh, affect decision making. I know Kahaneman and Tversky talked about it in their book as well, the undoing project, but h- how might pharma kind of help help to eliminate healthcare inequity and disparities by paying attention to that aspect of cognitive bias? It's
1: a really good question. Uh, it's one that we are finding that many of our clients are extremely invested in answering. Um, obviously, we are as well. So there's those individual scenarios, right? And, and it's not just race. We've seen, for example, in oncology, and they're thinking about who, who gets referred to CAR-T. Could be race, could be income, could be a lot of things. Did, did the patient show up? on time to all of the previous therapies. Well, you don't know what their transportation scenario is like, but you're making assumptions based off of that that then go into their access to the most advanced types of care. But it becomes even more critical on the clinical trial side where we just have not done a great job yet of having the recruiting represent the types of folks who are then taking the medicine. And so we've got a bunch of data that doesn't actually represent the folks that we are prescribing to. And so we're, we actually are doing a study right now, very similar to the vaccine study, looking at across a range of cognitive biases, which ones would help us persuade those folks that participating in the clinical trial is a good thing to do. How do we improve recruitment of those underrepresented populations within our clinical trials? And that, that data will then trickle down into the way that individual physicians practice because now I can see different subpopulations and how they reacted to this treatment, and that influences the, the, the way that I react when I see those patients in a clinical setting. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve care through, again, this, you know, this is where the commercial application becomes different. You test a range of these things and understand which are the ones that actually drive this population in this setting on this behavior. And then that, that opens up a, a lot of opportunity to improve behavior in ways that just telling them the facts just don't do. You could, you could tell it to your you're blue in the face we're not robots. We don't, we don't make decisions based on facts as much as we'd like to think that we do. Many times we don't.
0: Right. And just knowing that, you know, can can help. And there's a lot of opportunity to, to improve outcomes by paying more attention to behavioral science, for sure. Uh, just one last question, uh, Jacob, and I'll let you go. Just kind of turning back to the vaccine rollout for a second. You know, what's your assessment uh, at this stage, you know, where, you know, kind of, um, as vaccinations have slowed and, and we're kind of crawling toward that 70% goal on July 4th. Are these types of techniques being used to a, a large enough extent? Um, and, and do you see them you know, being integrated more uh, to get us to where we need to be?
1: Well, we, we think there's a big opportunity to use them more. I think our clients would agree. We've seen a lot of very strong interest within pharma manufacturers to put this to use in the public good, working with public health offices, building playbooks, putting not really promotional materials, but disease education materials in place to help drive vaccination that are grounded in these sorts of insights. I, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to, to improve what we've been doing. I mean, I, I live in the South. We are one of the hot spots where people are just not taking advantage of the opportunity to get vaccinated. We see it in the Midwest too. And if you look in the hospitals, most of the folks that are coming into the ICUs now are unvaccinated, and we're going to have we're going to have these hotspots persist. And every country is going to deal with this. So the more that we can get the folks on the ground within those hotspot areas armed with these tactics and strategies, I, th- I think the more we can get more conformity across across the different countries with a willingness to get vaccinated or to actually follow through and do it, so that we can we can all move on past this because it's just been it's been a brutal experience for everyone. I I, there's no one that I talk to that's not just ready for this to to stop.
0: Amen. I mean, we we are too. And uh, to that end, I hope we can do this again, have another conversation as we uh, hopefully put the pandemic in the rearview mirror.
1: That'd be great. I'd love to.
0: Thank you, Jacob. Well, I'm going to call it there. If you like this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your audio programming and help others discover the show. Okay. For Jacob Rowdy, this has been Mark Iskowitz uh, for the MMM Podcast. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care.